Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle, and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. So my uncle asked me if if he thought I could find a way to get my haggis to him. This is Paul Bradshaw. He's Scottish-Canadian. He grew up in Toronto eating the traditional Scottish dish haggis. About 10 years ago, his uncle in Florida asked Paul to mail him a haggis from Canada because some of the animal parts you need to make traditional haggis can't be brought into the U.S. So Paul devised a plan. I froze a giant haggis. I wrapped that in aluminum foil, thinking that that would help keep the cold in. Then I put it in a styrofoam shipping cooler, but then I figured that would be a red flag if I shipped it in that cooler, so I put the styrofoam cooler inside of another box and then just put a label on it saying that it was clothing and kind of hoped they didn't scan it. That's how I got into smuggling haggis. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And today I'm talking with Sporkful producer Andres O'Hara, who's got a story he's been working on. Hey, Andres. Hey, Dan. So summer's almost here. Tons of Americans will be traveling abroad soon, either to see family and friends or just to explore new places. And do you know what that means? What? That means that it's prime food smuggling season. (laughs) So... Let me start by asking you, have you ever smuggled food into this country? I mean, brought back something from abroad without declaring it? I have, yes. Like, you know, Janie and I were in in Paris a few years back, and I brought back several large blocks of cheese and a baguette, which I had to break in half because it was too long to fit in my suitcase. (laughs) And even though I understood that, like, by the time I got back, the baguette wouldn't be fresh anymore, it felt like I was, like, bringing a piece of France home with me. Mm -hmm. What about you, Andres? Have you ever done it? Yeah. um, A couple years back, I went to Montreal with my family. And on the last day of my trip, we all stopped by this really nice farmer's market. There were these really beautiful berries and tomatoes. And on the way to the border, I was thinking about this. I realized, oh, we we have food in the car and we're about to go through the border. And just as I suspected, the Border Patrol agent stopped the car and said, oh, do you have anything to declare? And I didn't want the hassle of them searching my car. Right. I didn't want to fill out any paperwork. And more importantly, I just didn't want my fruit to get taken away. <laughs> you wanted to eat it. I wanted those berries. Yeah. So what did I do? I said, no, nothing to declare, officer. And they just waved me through. I feel like it's pretty common. I hear a lot of people doing this. It doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Yeah, but it could have big unintended consequences. Food from abroad could be carrying in pests or diseases. A tomato from Italy could be holding a Mediterranean fruit fly. A salami from the Dominican Republic could be carrying in traces of African swine flu. There's a few different ways that invasive species can get into the country. Bugs can attach themselves to ships or latch onto shipping containers. But the main way that pests and diseases cross the border is through people, usually bringing them in completely unintentionally. And according to the USDA, these insects and diseases cause $40 billion of damage each year. Dan, do you remember about six months ago when eggs were really expensive? Yeah, I mean, I remember getting sticker shock last year buying eggs at the grocery store. Yeah, and that's because last year there was an avian flu epidemic in the U.S. and actually around the world. It killed millions of chickens 
and it was one of the big reasons that egg prices were spiking. And avian flu can be spread by people smuggling poultry meat into the country, even if, let's say, the meat is frozen. So bad things can happen. Yeah, it's not as innocent as people think it is. If you're caught, you can be fined. So today in the show, we're going to look at why people go to such an effort to smuggle food into the U.S., and we're going to meet some of the people at the border who are trying to stop them. It's going to include an appearance from a very special beagle who's a food-sniffing dog. <laughs> and a very good boy, I'm sure. Oh, he's, he's a really good boy. I can't <laughs> wait to tell you about him. All right, all right. Now I'm excited. Yeah. But first, let's get back to Paul and his haggis. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I was in Scotland years ago. I ate haggis. I generally understood that there were organs in there, but I don't totally remember what it is. So can you remind me? Haggis is a traditional Scottish dish. It was created by shepherds a long time ago who wanted to use all parts of the sheep so nothing would go to waste. That means that there's heart, kidney, lungs, and liver. They're all ground up, mixed with fat and oats and spices. It's all stuffed inside of a sheep's stomach. Then it's boiled for hours. It's creating like a kind of sausage. Paul, who you heard at the top of the show, says that it actually makes a great breakfast. He likes to cut up a couple pieces, fry them up in a frying pan with some eggs. That does sound delicious. Fried with eggs sounds delicious. And the the haggis I had, I remember liking it okay. I didn't love it, but I would try it fried with eggs for sure. But like, why can't you get it in the U.S., Andres? Yeah, so the reason that it's not allowed in the U.S. is because traditional haggis contains lungs. And back in the 70s, the USDA created a rule that said that lungs are no longer allowed to be sold or imported into the country. They were worried about particles in the air, that animals were breathing into their lungs, and there was a concern that somehow if people ate that, it could get them sick. Right. You're like, if you're eating what the animals are inhaling, it could be bad. Yeah. That was the theory back then, and the ban is still in the books today. Okay. But the thing is, when you make traditional haggis, you need to use lungs. Here's Paul Bradshaw. And lungs, although they don't have a very unique flavor, texturally, they're a large part of what makes haggis smooth. They're basically a sponge. So you're grinding that sponge in, which just gives that nice texture. Okay, but like, could you make haggis without lungs? Isn't there some other substitute? Yeah, there is actually haggis made without lungs. Paul told me that it's a more commonly found haggis in Canada. It's actually known as the American version. It's made with beef instead of lamb, and it doesn't have lungs in it. But Paul says that it really doesn't taste the same, and it's definitely not traditional. And tradition is really important when it comes to haggis. You see, this is a holiday dish, and there's one night when Scottish people all around the world eat haggis, and that's on January 25th, which is Burns Night. It's a celebration of Scotland's national poet, Robert Burns. Here's Paul again. Yeah, so traditionally the way it works for a proper Robbie Burns dinner is the haggis is sort of seen as the guest of honor. So the haggis is led into the dining room by a bagpiper, sometimes more than one. And then it's carried in on a very specific silver platter. Once the piping's done, the haggis is placed at the head table or serving table. And from there, they do what's called the address to the haggis. So the address to the haggis is a poem that was written by Robbie Burns. So the poem is read to the haggis by generally the host, or some people will bring in like a Scottish actor to do it. And in this traditional ceremony, the haggis is slashed open with a sword or a knife. Whiskey is poured into the haggis. And then it's served to the guests. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so it's so much more significant than like a Christmas turkey or ham or anything like that, where there is really this specific ceremony that you're supposed to follow and traditionally is followed. Yeah, hearing this, like there's so much ceremony around like the turkey at Thanksgiving in the U.S. And I just feel like it makes it all seem so uninteresting 
because there's not a train of bagpipes and a sword involved. There's no sword. There's no whiskey <laughs> being poured over the turkey. Yeah. 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 All right. Next year for Thanksgiving, we're going to do it. But anyway, it's clear that haggis is very special for Scottish people. Yeah, it really is. Paul's mom moved from Scotland to Canada in her 20s. Paul was born in Toronto. She kept Scottish traditions alive in the family. And so Paul grew up eating haggis. But when he was a teenager, a problem developed. We had one butcher growing up that we used to buy it from. He retired. And then we couldn't get good haggis anywhere because there's so few people who know how to make it well. When Paul turned 14, he got his first job at a local butcher shop, and he loved it. He knew then that he wanted to be a butcher. A couple years later, his mom asked if he could learn how to make haggis. And Paul thought, yeah, I can figure this out. Remember, he's 17 or 18 at the time. Full of hubris, and he figures, well, just throw a bunch of innards into a blender. It's easy. That's Yeah, that's kind of it. And he <laughs> thought, okay, I'll go online. I'll look up a few recipes. I ate this Right, I'll up. YouTube it. What's yeah. the big deal? <laughs> right, right. So he makes his first batch. And it was absolutely terrible. Like, every batch of haggis we made was gross and got thrown out. We had versions that just tasted like you were eating pure liver, basically. Um, we had versions that were a really mealy, like, wet newspaper kind of texture that was awful. Like it was just, no matter what we did, something sort of went wrong. He decided that he needed some real training. So at 19, he went to Scotland. One of his uncles there introduced Paul to his own butcher. A lot of the old school butchers don't like to share their recipes, especially in Scotland where haggis is basically a competitive sport for the butchers. I lucked out that this particular butcher was in his 90s. He was about to retire and sort of had nothing to lose at this point. So he quickly knew everything that I had done wrong in the process. Paul thought that making haggis was like making a sausage, where you grind the meat, you add the seasonings, and you stuff it in a casing. But in Scotland, he learned that you needed to approach it more like a baker. Oh, interesting. With pastry and baking, you have to add ingredients at very specific times to get the right texture. And haggis is like that. So when you're, you have fat and you have organs and you have oats and you have onions— Everything has to be added at a specific time and at a specific temperature. As an example, you would mix the oats into the organs, and then from there you mix the fat into that mixture, and then you mix the onions into that mixture, and it just, it has to be this process so that everything's incorporated evenly. You need to be doing it at the right stages, otherwise your haggis could have a mouthful that's pure fat, and then another mouthful that's pure organ meat. Paul stayed in Scotland for an entire month studying under this master haggis maker. That's commitment. And he came back to Toronto with his new knowledge, and he made a haggis for his mom. And as soon as my mom tried it, the, she said, like, right away it reminded her of the haggis she ate growing up. And then that's when I knew 100% I had done it. He began selling his haggis at the butcher shop where he worked, and soon word got out about it all around Toronto. Any customer of Scottish descent would cautiously buy the haggis and then come back with a big smile buying more and more. And even like there's a very famous Scottish chef in Toronto. His name is John Higgins. He was one of my favorite customers to get because it's like this guy born and raised in Scotland, was a chef in Scotland, came to Canada, is at the top of the world for cooking. And he says that my haggis is legit. Then like now I know that I've made it. I think within about three years of that, we were the biggest haggis producing store in Canada. Paul told me that in the run-up to Burns Night, he'd be making haggis 10 hours a day at the butcher shop. Oh my God. <laughs> he was getting on local TV news and in the newspapers. Word of Paul and his haggis began spreading around the internet. And that's when he got an email from an uncle in Florida who asked Paul if he could send him some of that super special haggis. Oh, but as we said, that would be illegal. Yeah, that's right. To be honest, I didn't really think much of it. I don't think I even knew if if there were repercussions or what they might be, I just figured I could plead ignorance if anything came from it. 
So Paul froze a haggis, packed it in a cooler, and mailed it to Florida. And a few days later, Paul got an email from his uncle. He just emailed me when it arrived, confirming it got there, it was still cold, and then emailed me again saying that it was the best haggis he'd have he'd had since he left Scotland. It reminded him of eating haggis growing up, that it was the first time since he was a kid that he had felt like he had had real haggis. But it turns out that was just the beginning. The next Robbie Burns Day, he asked me to send him another one. And then it was at that point where he had said that he had shared it with his father-in-law or brother-in-law or someone else who really liked it. So then he wanted a bigger one so he could share it with them. And then I just kind of kept sending bigger and bigger haggises so that he could share them amongst friends. I don't really know the details of how many people, but I got a couple thank yous sent to me into my email from people who I had never heard of before who tried haggis because of him. Then something else happened. Word got around in Toronto's Scottish community that Paul was smuggling haggis to relatives in the U.S. Other people had asked me about getting it into the States, and I shared what I did to get it there and kind of always said, but I don't know if I got lucky. I don't know if you'll get caught. I don't know how any of this works. I can just tell you I've successfully sent it. A few of them had sent it. Um, I know a couple of people who even drove it across the border to bring it to family. I'd never heard of anybody getting caught. I had a few customers who asked me to create a label for the haggis that said lamb sausage instead of haggis, thinking that if they got caught, lamb sausage isn't illegal. Those people were all successful, but from what I know, no one ever actually looked at the package. So they didn't actually need that label, but that was sort of the backup plan we put in place. For Paul, the thrill of smuggling all that haggis wasn't about breaking the law. It felt good for a different reason. It was similar to maybe not the same level as when my mom first tried it, but it was just a similar experience of being able to kind of take this family tradition that in some ways kind of died off 10 or 15 years ago when my mom and her siblings went to different countries and the family kind of split up, and to be able to reintroduce this across the pond here and recreate exactly the same thing as they had been eating all that time is just, that's the part that I love the most. About eight years ago, Paul stopped butchering, and he also stopped making haggis. He'd been butchering for 11 years, and he wanted a change. He'd also never gotten caught smuggling haggis, so maybe he just wanted to quit while he was ahead. He retired as the haggis king of Canada. That's right. No one could stop him. (laughs) (laughs) So what does Paul do now? Well, I was thinking maybe this is actually a good next step for Paul, considering his haggis smuggling, because he now works in international meat sales. Oh, (laughs) it's like when uh, computer companies hire hackers Mm -hmm. to like improve their security. Yeah. Now he's on the inside. He's on the inside. Yeah. (laughs) So like, what are his opinions about all these international rules about bringing in food? He says he sees this all the time where a certain food is illegal in one country, but right across the border, it's legal. And he gets why certain foods can be high risk, and he thinks, yeah, those should be restricted. But with a lot of these rules, like the ban on lungs, for example, he just thinks they're antiquated. What do experts say today? So in 1971, they thought lungs were bad. Like, what do they say today? Are animal lungs actually putting people at risk? There's not a lot of good data about whether or not people have gotten sick directly from eating lung. But one of the most prominent pro-lung activists in the U.S. is the physician and author Dr. Jonathan Reisman. He's written a lot about why he thinks that the ban on lungs should be overturned. And to be perfectly honest, he's one of the few people writing about it, which is why I don't know if this is going to be high on the priority list for a while. Right, right, But his argument is that nearly every other developed country does not have a ban on lungs, and there's nothing inherently more dangerous about eating lung than any other organ. Do you remember when we said earlier that the USDA found in studies that animals are inhaling particles 
in their lungs, and then there's a concern about eating them. Right, right. Dr. Reisman has spoken to other doctors and veterinarians who say, yeah, we're inhaling particulates into our lungs as well. We're also inhaling those things. Right, right. Humans are doing that. Well, I mean, like, and, and there's a certain, what you're saying is like, there's a certain amount of risk when you eat anything. Yeah. What he's saying is that lungs aren't any more risky than anything else. Yeah. But lungs got a ban in 1971, and the rule has never been changed. And for people like Dr. Reisman, for people like Paul Bradshaw, and for a lot of Scottish people who want to import haggis into the United States, they see it as an antiquated law. So Dan, Paul's haggis smuggling is kind of like your cute artisanal grocery store. But now we want to tell you about a smuggling operation that's more like a Costco. Whoa, okay. (laughs) We are headed 3,000 miles south to the U.S.-Mexico border to talk about one of the most smuggled foods coming into the U.S. Okay, so what is it? What is this illicit substance, this highly prized illicit material? Dan, it's baloney. No, no. I think it's legitimate, Andres. Tell me what it is. Oh, my God. Dan, it's Mexican baloney. <laughs> oh, it's actual baloney? It is actual baloney. And it's something that U.S. Customs and Border Patrol has been dealing with for decades. I spoke to one officer in El Paso who said that he caught someone driving across the border with 500 pounds of baloney. <laughs> That's a lot of sandwiches. It's a lot of bologna. The bologna smuggler had made a homemade bench seat in his truck. He covered it with his blanket, and he had his kids sitting on it. Oh, this poor kid being roped into this smuggling operation. I know. And then once uh, Border Patrol looked inside, they found rolls and rolls of bologna. And just for comparison, Paul didn't smuggle in 500 pounds of haggis in his entire life. This is just one bologna bust. They keep happening over and over again. People driving in with hundreds of pounds of bologna in their car. Just to clarify, these are both U.S. citizens and Mexican nationals, and they hide it in their car seats. They hide it in their luggage or spare tires. Oh, my God. Border Patrol officers are trained to look for concealed items. They're looking for these hidden compartments. And if they find them, they usually assume it's drugs. But sometimes they'll crack open a car door and find a stash of bologna. (laughs) So, Andres, like, what's the deal with this bologna? Yeah, the thing is, it's mostly the exact same kind of bologna, a 10-pound roll from the brand Chimex. In Mexico, you can buy them for around $15, and once you get it across the border into the U.S., the farther you can get it from the border, the more valuable they are. I see. So the farther north you drive, the price keeps going up. That's exactly right. In certain markets, you can sell them for as much as $120 a roll. Holy cow. Well, you you know what you got to do, Andres? Drive the bologna all the way to the Canadian border. You get top dollar, farthest possible distance. You get it across the fence, get some haggis, take that south. Then you're making money in both directions. Dan, I'm seeing a Netflix show emerging. Nar- Narcos, <laughs> but for um, bologna. Na- Narcos, the haggis wars. <laughs> <laughs> so if you get caught smuggling this Mexican bologna in, what's the penalty? I mean, for a big bust, you can get fined up to $1,000 and your bologna can get taken away. But it's a hard thing to police because actually most people will only bring in one or two rolls at a time. And they'll go across the border something like 10 or 20 times, get a big shipment and drive it north. That seems like a lot of effort for baloney. It's a ton of work. But like with any smuggling operation, with any market, really, like there's supply and demand. So we've talked about the supply, mm-hmm. we'll bring it into this country. But now I want to know about the demand. Like, why are people paying such a premium? Why do people want this Chimex baloney so badly? Yeah, I was really curious about that, too. So I talked to our previous Sporkflow guest, Patty Hinnich. She moved from Mexico to the United States 22 years ago. And since then, she's written cookbooks and she's made TV shows Her latest show on PBS is called La Frontera, and it's all about the culture on both sides of the border. So I thought she was the perfect person to speak to. She told me that she hadn't had Chimex bologna since she was a kid, but she can still remember the taste. 
It's highly seasoned and, of course, processed. And it just tastes like a really good bologna with a lot of flavor. The beauty of it is that if you put a slice of it between two pieces of bread, you don't need anything else because it has so much flavor. This is making me really want to eat it. Now. I know. I'm, I'm really curious. I actually really want to taste this bologna. I, I didn't expect to come out of this conversation craving both haggis and Mexican bologna, <laughs> but go on. Patty says that this Chimex bologna, it was a common food for parents to pack for their kids' school lunches, for bologna sandwiches. So there's a lot of nostalgia connected to that food. That explains why people want it. But then so like, why doesn't Chimex just make bologna here in the U.S.? You know, they actually do, but they make it with chicken instead of pork. I reached out to the company to try to find out why, but so far, no one's returned my messages. People from Mexico say that this American bologna just doesn't taste the same. They want the bologna that they ate growing up. It's the romantic view of where you come from, of your roots, of home, of, you know, you move on, you grow, you get older, and you're craving for those moments it's all of your senses, right? When you're eating something, it's not just that it tastes like something, but it felt like something. It smelled like something. It looked like something. It connects you to, to a moment that you may be nostalgic about. Patty has spent her career recreating Mexican recipes here in the U.S. Now, she says, there are many Mexican products you can find in this country, but it wasn't always the case. She used to bring back suitcases of dried chilies, and she said that Border Patrol would usually let her take them in, but not always. There were many times. I remember bringing the dried chilies or dried hibiscus flowers, and they were like, nope, this one, nope. And how, how did you feel that they were taking those away? Extremely sad and disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. course. <laughs> and then, I mean, many times I would say, okay, but please just don't throw them away. Like, just please don't throw them away. This is how you can use them. And I would give them recipes, you know, just boil the hibiscus flowers in hot boiling water and add a little bit of honey. I would just give them instructions to, if I wasn't going to keep them, please don't throw them away and use them. I love that she's giving them recipes. I yep. imagine her like holding up the entire line uh, <laughs> while she's like writing out like two cups water, quarter cup sugar, hibiscus flowers. <laughs> she gets pleasure from other people enjoying food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I can imagine it just like killing her to like to think that these things might get thrown away. Absolutely. She wants them to make someone happy. Coming up, we find out what happens to Patty's hibiscus flowers and all the other foods seized at the border. Stick around. And now, delicious word from our sponsors. Mm -mm, it's very good. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. 
Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Dakota.com. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, did you catch the big season finale of Top Chef? Well, on last week's show, I talked with Gail Simmons, who's been one of the judges on Top Chef since the show began. We talk about how the show and her role on it have evolved over the years. And Gail talks about how she's learned over time that it's okay sometimes to not take food so seriously. Of course, she had to learn that the hard way, like during her honeymoon in Vietnam, when she created a strategic list of the top restaurants she wanted to try. And... Top of that list was one restaurant in Hanoi. And we tried going several times, and we struck out every time. You can't make a reservation. The line was too long. They closed the door. It closed by the time we got there. It was like we were, like, hitting a wall every time. And partially maybe because of jet lag, I just, like, broke down on the third try and lost my mind and cried for, like, the better part of 12 hours (laughs) on my honeymoon. That interview's up now. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. All right, back to the show, and I'm talking with Sporkful producer Andres O'Hara, who's been looking into the world of food smuggling. Hello again, Andres. Hey, Dan. All right, so we talked about a sort of small-time guy who smuggled in some haggis from Canada for family and friends. Then we heard about this big underground market for Mexican bologna. Yeah, like the Costco for underground bologna. Right. What's next? So we've been talking about the people who bring food into this country. Now I want you to meet some of the people who work to keep food out. Because, as we said, if the wrong bug or disease gets into the country, it could cause billions of dollars in damage. We're going to JFK Airport in New York City 
21 million passengers come through JFK's international terminal every year. And they bring their bags with them. They all end up in baggage claim, and that's where I met an agricultural specialist for U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, Officer Miguel Ortiz. He was there with his partner, Prince. Hey, it's a little shy. Oh, he jumped up. Oh, he's so cute. Hey, buddy. Can I pet him? No. <laughs> okay. So just to be clear, Andres, uh, Prince is a dog. Prince is a dog. I was not allowed to pet Prince, though I really wanted to. Right, Prince is working. He's, he's focused. He's focused, but he's adorable. He's a beagle, and he's part of the Beagle Brigade. Aww. And it's a network of dogs trained to sniff out food at airports all around the country. Technically speaking, Dan, when you're at baggage claim at the international terminal, you're still at the border. You haven't crossed into the United States yet. And it's the job of Officer Ortiz and his partner Prince to make sure that no unauthorized foods make it past this border and onto U.S. soil. These dogs are trained to identify a range of foods. Prince's job is to sniff the bags in the carousel and find the ones holding food. But it's not easy with a crowd of passengers trying to get their stuff. So right now, we're seeing these bags that we're spinning on the carousel. I don't know where the flight is from, but I'm going to have the dog go around, walk around, excuse me, and see if the dog give me a response, excuse me. And I don't want the dog to be distracted or disturbed from what he's doing right now, because any distraction will deter him to continue working. Prince has many distractions. There's blankets, hanging dresses, kids' toys, and neck pillows. He just go after them. He just go after them and he tried to play with them. When I was watching Prince do his job, I sort of expected a soldier, a dog that was calm, composed, and alert. Yeah, like one of these super trained dogs that like spent three years in smuggled food sniffing school. Yeah, that 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 is exactly the image I had. But Prince actually just reminded me of my dog, who is not very well trained, I'll say. <laughs> when I take her on a walk, she's sniffing around, hunting for chicken bones on the sidewalk, and going a little nuts. We figured out the secret of smuggling in Mexican bologna, which uh-huh. is just pack a bunch of neck pillows. <laughs> pack a bunch of neck pillows, <laughs> let Prince play with them, and then let right, that bologna right, go free. Yeah. Throw a few squeaky toys in there, and the dogs <laughs> will never find the bologna. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where Officer Ortiz comes in. His job is to keep Prince focused, to get him close enough to the bags to sniff out for food. Let's go, find it. Find it. So we're walking along the carousel, weaving between the people. Mommy, a dog. Find it. When Prince gives Officer Ortiz the signal he's been looking for, Prince sits. Ooh, whose bag is this? Mine. Officer Ortiz starts talking to the family that's waiting for their bags. May I please have your attention here? Yeah. Where are you coming from? I'm coming to Dubai from India. From India. Do you have any food items in this bag? Sorry? Any yeah. food items? Yeah. What kind of food items do you have? We bought it in the airplane. What do you have? The father has some fruit. It was served on the airplane, and he just saved it for his kids. I, I hear that. I've done that. And you have also a little fruit cup? Yeah. So this one and... And any apple, oranges? I that too. Oats. Oats? Yeah. Okay. So this is like pineapple, watermelon, and... Cantaloupe and maybe pear. So this item, because it's coming from other country, is not allowed. May I see your passport, please? Officer Ortiz explains that as long as the passengers declare all of their food at this final checkpoint, they won't get fined. The food might get confiscated, but that's it. No one gets in trouble. And what if they don't declare it? What if they try to hide other food they have? They can get fined $300 and they'll also be put on a list. So next time they're on a flight, they might get flagged for extra security measures. 
Oh, right. You like, uh, you know, America's most wanted baloney smugglers. That might actually be it. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens with the food that they confiscate? Well, that's what I found out next. I could show you the grinding room. I don't know if there's anything on the table, but we can take a look at that. Absolutely. This is Anthony Bucci, who met up with us at this point. Anthony Bucci. I'm the public affairs specialist for Customs and Border Protection in the New York field office. I follow Anthony Bucci and Officer Ortiz to our next location. We walk away from baggage claim, down a hallway, past an office for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and into a small room. There's tables along the walls with microscopes and glass slides. Taped up on the wall are pictures of all the pests that Border Patrol is trying to keep out of the country. And then, right in the middle, I mean, it takes up nearly the entire room, it's the grinding table. It's this giant stainless steel table with a big sink in the middle. It's basically a huge garbage disposal. And that's where all the forbidden food goes to get ground up. And there's a method to how they do it. They typically go in stages. Sometimes we'll have peppers or something that are a little um, spicy. It will get in the air. Uh, So in order to kind of cleanse the room, they usually like to grind all the citrus fruit at the end. Leaves a nice smell. So contrary to popular belief, we do not take the items home. We don't eat them. We don't have a big party with right. them. Do, do people actually ask you if you're going to take the food home and eat it? Is that, is that a real thing? Well, you know, I, I have the, the comments. I enjoy it. Or people that say, bon appetit, you know. We have <laughs> to explain to them that we do not take or we do not eat or we do not use any of the product that we seized. Instead, they go in the grinder. Oh, sorry, Patty. I guess your uh, hibiscus flowers did not get used. Yeah, but there are certain foods that the grinder can't handle, ones that are too fibrous or that can clog up the blades, like sugarcane or rice. So whatever can't be put through the grinding machine, they'll put in the bags, they'll seal the bags, then they're, they're incorporated for the burn run when they're going to be incinerated. Where is that? Is that, is that here at JFK? Um, we don't disclose the exact location. Why? What's like... Well, because there's not just food products. So there's going to be drugs, narcotics, there's going to be counterfeit goods, uh, bad people. If they knew where we were going to destroy it, perhaps they might want to intercept that convoy to recover those goods that they lost or maybe take the goods. Uh, Yeah, so we don't disclose where the location is. Imagine if you were hardcore drug smugglers and you found out where the convoy was going and you hashed a big, this is like a Breaking Bad style uh-huh. ra- raid on the convoy and you seize the truck and you open up the back of it thinking you're going to find all these drugs and instead it's just a bunch of like mangoes, <laughs> sugar cane and scallions. <laughs> <laughs> I do not know why that hasn't been a scene in one of these uh, drug yeah. movies because it's so good. <laughs> so now that the baggage runs are over, Prince needs a rest. And we head to the canine office. Yes, Prince has his very own office. Well, I don't even have my own office. Well, Prince does. <laughs> Prince still has to share it with the agricultural specialists like Officer Ortiz. Okay. Uh, and so he goes into his kennel and rehydrates. Next to his kennel, there's a few desks, and there's a back room with five fridges that hold the meat and fruits that the dogs use for training. There's also a glass case in that room with all kinds of jars and canisters, things that people have used to conceal what they're bringing in. We have seen eggs inside flour. Sometimes people hide prosciutto between books, you know, pages. You mean um, slight, like slices of prosciutto between yeah. pages of books? Yes. So you open a book. And there's prosciutto between the, the pages. 
I tell you that that would get me reading. <laughs> Talk about a page turn. Oh my god! I would get to the end of the book. Janie would be like, "What happened?" I'm like, "I don't know, but it was delicious." The oiliest <laughs> copy of War and Peace you have. But sadly, that prosciutto ends up in the grinding room with everything else. Anthony Bucci and Officer Ortiz say that when they explain to people why the food has to be confiscated, they usually understand. But it's still hard for many of them to let go. A lot of times, a person is coming here to visit family for the first time. They don't have a lot to bring. So what they bring is kind of their foods from their homeland. So it's a, uh, it's a present that they're bringing for their family. Uh, so when, unfortunately, we have to seize it because it's not allowed in, it can sometimes become a little emotional with that passenger. I can tell you that food is something very precious to people. It brings them memories. And I see it almost every day. Almost every day somebody will tell you that. Say, why are you taking this? I cannot find this food over here. The food here doesn't taste the same as my food. Thanks to Kay Cecilia Sakira, Julie Hong Sikowski, and Aaron Beaumont at USDA, Roger Mayer and Charles Payne at U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, and Dr. Jonathan Reisman, whose website is anatomyeats.com. And make sure to check out seasons one and two of La Frontera with Patty Hinnich, streaming now on pbs.org. Next week on the show, I chat with stand-up comedian, screenwriter, and viral content creator Zarna Garg. She tells me about the culture shock of moving from India to Ohio as a teenager, making broccoli for her kids for breakfast, and how she broke into the New York comedy world after 16 years as a stay-at-home mom. That's next week. In the meantime, make sure you check out last week's episode with Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons. We talk about how the show's evolved over its 20 seasons and how Gail's approach to judging and eating has also changed. That episode's up now. Check it out. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Editing by... Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Karen on Long Island, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.